Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Glad to see you. Um, I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. I'd like to welcome you to our Arab Shabbat service here at Benai Shalom. Um, as we get our Sabbath underway, I want to make a quick announcement for you. This is off into the future. <clears throat> in fact, uh, Lion and Lamb Ministries is now planning that will be in the Oklahoma area here, a Hanukkah conference that's obviously will be off in December. It'll be hosted by Hebraic Family Fellowship, a local Messianic congregation that's here in the Norman Moore area of Oklahoma. And um, you'll be hearing more details on this and what the program's going to be involved, but it appears it'll be like a weekend, uh, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday kind of event. And uh, so we just want to give you a heads up on some fun activities that we got planned for Hanukkah. We want to remind you, of course, about the Feast of Tabernacles coming up. And uh, we, if you're not registered, please get registered for that so that you can be a part of this year's feast. And also, we ask for your prayer <clears throat> in the coming weeks here in July for Camp Yeshua. We have youth coming from all over the country ages 14 through 18, be coming for a week-long intensive uh, Messianic Youth Training Camp. And um, uh, we're excited about that happening. Uh, registration filled up on this very quickly, so we, <clears throat> we have a group of very excited youth coming. Please pray uh, about that for the success the Lord wants. And if you would like to help sponsor one of the youth to be able to come to camp and help defray some of their expenses, for camp, we, of course, accept donations for camperships and for scholarships for the kids uh, to come to camp. Um, as a last note, let me just remind everybody that <clears throat> here at Benign Shalom, uh, we don't like pass an offering plate around to you because, because we're through the Internet and through the broadcast. So it's really upon you, if you feel led, to initiate a donation toward us in that way. You can do that on the Benai Shalom site by going in and hitting the Donate button, or you can send a donation into Lion and Lamb, and it goes to the same place to help Benai Shalom uh, for it. Please remember, you know, that we do have uh, monetary needs to be able to do all of this, and we appreciate all your prayers and support for our broadcast and service. So without any further ado, Shabbat Shalom, and let's prepare for Kiddush. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Please join our family as we welcome in the Sabbath. Don't blow the candles out again. Not this time. That's so smoky. Okay, you ready? Ready? Help me. Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Makalom, Hasher Kedeshanu Ebensotah, Let's 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGahafen Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Chamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's all right. Now for the blessing of our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day, and I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, even in the middle of the night when she sees about the ways of the household. I pray that you would bless her and encourage her as she teaches and educates the children. I thank you for the blessing that she is to me and to our home and to our family. And I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her. Give her the product of her hands in everything that she does. And Father, I confess to her and to you that I love my wife. So Father, I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing on this Sabbath day. We also lift up the widows and orphans, those without a husband or a father at this time as well. So we thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Let us bless our sons.
bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. May He lift up His countenance and grant you peace. May you be like Ruth and like Esther. May the Lord with you ever be. May He bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. bless you and grant you long life. May God make you good mothers and May He bring you husbands who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness, so hear our Sabbath prayer. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom.
Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Baelim Adonai Michmocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohora Techilot who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech, Hayashua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et hashabat, lasot et hashabat ladortam berit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Israel odhit leolam, kishashet yamim asadonai et hashamayim v'et haret avayom hashabi'i shavat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale'a asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. Ve'shin nantam la'venecha. 
Altogether. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
the Western Wall. Been praying all the time for Yosef's call. On that day, they will see an army of Ephraim is set free. Strangers in a foreign land. Yosef's time is at hand. Ears and eyes hear and see the prophet's road. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Bamidbar in the wilderness, the book of Numbers, to chapter 16, where our portion will begin for this week. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Arunai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Brachabanu Mikol Haamim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch atah Arunai Nontein HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week. Begins in Numbers chapter 16 and extends through chapter 18. And this is the portion of Korah. When there was a man by the name of Korah who was a son of Levi who rebelled against Moses and Aaron. This is actually one of my favorite Torah portions. This is a portion I've had an opportunity to teach a great number of times. And it's actually that that's kind of not the norm for Torah teachers. Normally, we don't like the portion of Korah because of its rebellion, because of the sin, the death that's associated with it. And that's something my father's always said that he never liked the portion of Korah. And one of the one of the ways that we know this is that the Torah is living and alive. And it seems at this time of the year is when suddenly people start to get embittered with other people and brethren and it's been our history of congregations that we've been a part of and uh, others might attest to this as well that right around this time of the year as the weather starts to get hot that brethren might kind of be frustrated with one another and that you might have a, a dispute between another brother and and in the history of our congregations over the years, congregational splits have sometimes happened at this time of the year, right around the portion of Korah. The Torah is living and alive, and so it's, it's kind of in the air, if you will. So my father never liked the portion of Korah. However, my opportunities to teach it on a number of occasions uh, has caused me to realize how much we truly can learn from this Torah portion and how important that it is. That we learn these principles, understanding who this man was, why he did what he did, how he did what he did, and what can we learn so that this mistake never happens again. 
Nobody goes into a group or a fellowship or a camp, if you will, and says, all right, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to be a leader one day and I'm going to rise up and I'm going to overthrow the, the leadership. Nobody says that. If you sit there in a group of brethren looking at one another that all want to work together, we, we can look at this and be like, all right, nobody pull a Cora here. Nobody uh, try to raise, raise themselves up above everybody else. We're not going to have a rebellion. You kind of go in to any sort of agreement between people and you know this story, you know what happened. And so then you say, all right, we're not we're not going to do that. But as we dig in deeper and realize who Cora was and why he did what he did, it turns out that that rebellion, even if an agreement is made between brothers, that rebellion can still come up because of some very simple pitfalls. So we'll learn more about that here and learn about the man Cora here in a little bit. Let me now read from Numbers chapter 16 and let's get into our story for the week. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and Om, the son of Peleh, Peleth, sons of Reuben, they took men and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and they said to them, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? This is the dispute. Here's what they come. They come before Moses and Aaron and they they question their leadership, why they are exalted above anyone else. Now, Korah was the son of uh, Kohath. He was in the same family as Moses and Aaron. He was actually first cousins with Moses and Aaron. This was a person who was very familiar with the family. Well known. This was uh, they probably spent time together. They, they very well, very much knew of each other. Now, these other men, Dathan and Aviram and On, the son of Peleth, these were sons of Reuben. Now, if you go back to Numbers chapter 3, you will learn that the family of Kohath, the Levites from Kohath, camped near Reuben on the south side of the tabernacle. They were very near. They were neighbors, if you will. So the fact that these men were interacting with each other, that this is makes perfect sense that these men would sit and they would talk and I'm sure they would talk with one another and they would say, hey, why, why is Moses and Aaron? They would question leadership. You got to remember, this is after they've already lost their ticket to the promised land. This is after they've already traveled into the, tried to take the promised land and had battles that beat them all the way back to back into the wilderness of Paran, where they could now they've lost their ticket to the promised land. So this is a, a time later after the bad report, after the judgment already came that they were going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. So we don't know the exact amount of time, but they there was obviously some tensions that would raise if we weren't going to the promised land as that came as that judgment came in our previous portion. And so they come and they approach. And so the question is, is why do these men think that they should be leaders above the congregation? Well, Korah was there's a couple of speculations about who Korah was, is that he was a leader of uh, he was too a man of renown. He could speak well, probably was good looking. He was a qualified leader to lead the people. He's a son of Levi. Why is Moses, who can't speak very well, who is slow of speech? And why is Aaron, a man who created a golden calf? Why is they why are those two guys still in leadership? Why isn't Korah, you know, the next in line to be the most qualified leader? It appears in the scripture that Korah very much was desiring Aaron's job. 
that Korah should be the high priest. Dathan and Abiram, they're from Reuben. Remember, Reuben, Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. But the blessing instead went to Joseph. And then Judah also was the one that would carry the scepter and would be the lead tribe that would lead the children of Israel whenever they moved camp. Judah was leading the way. Why isn't Reuben leading the way? Wasn't Reuben the firstborn? So I believe the way that we look at this, Dathan and Abiram, they were desiring of Moses' job, being the political leaders of Israel. One of the things that's interesting about this, this man, On, son of Peleth, this is the one and only time in all of Scripture that this man is mentioned. He's mentioned here. He's never mentioned again. When the judgment and the rest of this portion takes place, we never hear what happens to this man ever again. Now, speculation is maybe he was still part of the part of the people that were judged. It's not he's again, like I said, not mentioned by name. So one of the things that we need to do there is study and see, Okay, why is his name mentioned? Well, own the son of Peleth, he his name means strength or actually sometimes wealth. And then also his father, Peleth, means swiftness. So what this actually speaks to is the way in which Korah, Dathan and Abiram approached Moses. They came with great strength. They came with great wealth. They came with swiftness. These were the people who were the strongest, fastest, and most wealthy of the entire congregation that are coming. Why aren't they qualified to be the leaders? Well, that is a fallacy of anybody who thinks that they should be a leader. It's a fallacy to think that the strongest person is the most qualified to lead. Not necessarily. It's a fallacy to think that one with the most wealth should be the leader and make all the decisions. That also is a fallacy as well. It's also a fallacy to think that if you're in the majority, if you have all these people on your side, such as 250 princes, that suddenly you're right and righteous in your argument, in your rebellion, in your actions, that because you have all these people on your side. Those are all fallacies to think that you are more qualified to be a leader than anyone else. Because in the case of the congregation, in the case of Moses and Aaron, these men were anointed to be the leaders. Aaron was anointed to be the high priest, which was a permanent position, and that it was God that chose Moses, not not voted on by the people, by the majority, not because everybody thinks they're the most qualified, but it's God himself who assigns the authority. And that's what Korah and Dathan and Abiram were rebelling against. They were not rebelling against Moses and Aaron. They were rebelling against their master, who is the God of Israel. That's who the rebellion is. That's why you want to be a servant in the master's house, because if someone comes against you, they are not forming a dispute with you. They are forming a dispute with your master who is over you. So that is what we are witnessing here before we go on any further, knowing this, remembering this, that this was not a rebellion against Aaron and Moses. This was a rebellion against the God who chose them to be his servants. Understand? Very good. Now, as we move on, let's now continue to read and see what happens here. Verse four. So Moses heard it. He fell on his face. He spoke to Korah and all of his company, saying, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censors. Korah. And all your company put fire in them, put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that man that the man whom the Lord chooses is the holy one. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. As best we can determine from this language, the 250 princes were sons of Levi. 
that they were ones who wished to worship the Lord in the way that the Levites, that they, they wanted to come in near into the sanctuary, but that was only reserved for uh, Aaron and his sons. So they're wishing to worship the Lord and become even closer, come nearer to the Lord in the process of their worship. And Korah himself, being a son of Levi, he wants like I said, Aaron's job. He wants to be the one who tends to all the important things and is the most important Levite of all the Levites. So Moses continues to say to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do all the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve them, and that he has brought you near to himself, you and your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you, and you are seeking the priesthood also? Therefore, you and all your company gathered against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? Again, directly addressing that this is what they were desiring. They're desiring to be even closer to the Lord, even though they're already Levites, even though they're already priests, that they have been set aside and separated from the rest of the congregation to be closer to God. They still desire their greedy and desire more to be even closer to God and that the grumbling is directly with Aaron. These are the Levites in their argument. Then Moses sends a call to Dathan and Aviram, the sons of Eliab, that they said, we will not come up. It is a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should be acting like a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of this man? We will not come up. Dathan and Aviram have no desire whatsoever to worship the Lord with bronze censers and to come nearer to the Lord and to have that worship the Lord in the way that the Levites do. They were sons of Reuben. They could care less. Like I said before, they desire to be the political leaders. They just want to be able to make the decisions for the congregation, lead the people, be judges, rulers over the, all of the children of Israel. That is what appears to be their motivation. Their interesting language there where it says they brought him up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. So we're going to call Egypt the land flowing with milk and honey just to get that understand that is a form of blasphemy where you take something that is holy and you call it unholy or take something that is unholy and call it holy. They're calling Egypt the promised land. That is a complete contradiction to everything that we are doing here through walking toward. These are still sons of Israel, mind you, that would be calling the land of Egypt where they were enslaved for a number of years. That's apparently the promised land. This is the obviously these men and their motivation, what they were saying. Very confusing. Now, one of the things that we do think about these men at this time is that one of the things that led to this rebellion is that they had probably been fellowshipping with one another around a campfire. Maybe they had brewed up some, uh, I don't know, ancient Near East uh, libations uh, around their camp and that they had formed some liquid courage in their bodies before they came and did this. That is not out of the realm of possibility that suddenly they're rising up and they're coming before Moses and Aaron and these men saying something crazy like the Egypt being the land flowing with milk and honey. That is the words of a drunk man. So that's one of the things that we speculate about this. But Moses, knowing this, maybe smelling the alcohol on their breath, is trying to plead with them to maybe think about this, to do the right thing. And he says, tomorrow, let's do this. Let's not do it now. 
Go back, get some rest, sober up. Then let's have a conversation. Then let's worship the Lord. Let's do this. You know, he's actually Moses is giving them every chance to plead their case in the most appropriate, proper way. It's as if you're going to a trial and then the, the lawyer, your lawyer is coming to argue the case and he happens to be drunk that day. But the judge is so kind that he lets the lawyer sober up so he can present a good case. That is what's going on here. So this is what it says. Moses was very angry with Dathan and Abiram. He, t- he tells the, he asked the Lord, do not respect their offering that I have not taken a donkey from them, nor have I hurt any one of them. So Moses says to Korah again, tomorrow you and your company be present before the Lord. You and they, as well as Aaron, let each man take a censer, put incense on it, bring the censer before the Lord. 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took a censer and put fire in it. It does not say that this was the next morning. It does not say that on the next day they did this. One of the things that it appears because of that language. Now, later on in this chapter, it will say something will happen on the next day. And it clearly says in verse 41, on the next day, the congregation did this. So here, it does not say that. So even though Moses might be pleading that tomorrow, sober up, let's do this tomorrow so that then we can be we can do this properly. It appears they took their censors and they immediately were ready to do it. It does. Scripture does not say that this occurred on the next day. So every man took his censer, he put fire in it. He laid incense on it and stood at the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron and gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared before the congregation. So Korah, he gathered up. He says, everybody, come take a look at this. The 250 men and I, we're going to worship the Lord and we're going to show you who's right and who's going to be the new leader of the congregation. So Korah, not only Moses didn't ask for the whole congregation to be present. Korah is looking for an audience. So this is how he builds and escalates what's going what's happening here. Verse 20, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourself from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, oh, God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the congregation, saying, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. Then Moses rose up and went to Dathan and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Aviram. And Dathan and Aviram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by a common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all the belongings, all that belongs to them, and they go down into alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and all and all their goods. So they all all of those who were with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Then all of Israel who was around them fled at their cry and they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. 
And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy. Scatter the, scatter the fire some distance away. The censers of these men who sinned against their own souls, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, because they presented them before the Lord. So therefore they are holy, and they shall be assigned to the children of Israel. So Eliezer the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned up and had presented, and they were hammered out as a covering on the altar to be a memorial to the children of Israel that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he might become like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. This is the judgment. This is how it comes down. Dathan, Aviram, Korah, their tents, the ground opens up, swallows them. They go down alive into the pit. The glory of the Lord appears, consumes the men who are offering incense. They came close to the Lord to offer the incense, to worship the Lord in that way. And the Lord, the fire appears before the Lord, consumes them immediately. Their censers drop to the ground. What happens here, there's a couple of things of note that are going on. One, <coughs> excuse me. The censers are called holy. The, all of these men had bronze censers to worship the Lord. If you remember, back in Exodus chapter 35, men were supposed to be stirred of their hearts to give offerings to the creation of the tabernacle. And bronze was one of those materials that was offered. One of the things that was laid on my heart, this, one of these new times that I was studying uh, Korah, is that I realized these men all still had their bronze censers. They hadn't had a stirring in their heart to give that to the tabernacle for the creation of the tabernacle. Almost as if those bronze censers, these sons of Levi, they should have known and should have made that gift, that offering to the tabernacle, that those censers should have always been attached and affixed as a hammering plate, a covering over the altar. But these men were selfish. They still had those things in their possession. It speaks to the hearts of these men that though these men were leaders, did they truly have their heart focused on the commandments of the Lord, the word of the Lord? They watched uh, uh, Nadab and Abihu worship the Lord in an, in an improper way and they too died. Where were these men's hearts at? We have evidence or at least a, a circumstantial evidence that could be that these men did not have a heart to serve the Lord because they didn't even offer the bronze in their possession to the creation of the tabernacle. At a previous time. So the Lord consumes them. He swallow, swallows them up. Now you would think this supernatural death of these men who rebelled against the Lord. That this would have been the thing that clearly uh, God has chosen who's going to be the leader. That all the congregation would learn from this mistake and we wouldn't have any more issues. You would think that. However, what happens on the next day at verse 41 is as frustrating and as disturbing as what had just previously happened on the next day all the congregation the children of israel complained against moses and aaron saying you've killed the people of god now it happened when the congregation had gathered against moses and aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the lord appeared once again whenever the glory of the lord appears it could either be very good or very very bad now, these people, they turned and came and approached the tabernacle of meeting in an improper way as we're reading it here. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, take a censer, put fire in it. 
from the altar, put incense on it, and take it quickly to the congregation. Make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded, ran into the midst of the assembly. Already the plague had begun among the people, so they put the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had been stopped. So not only did Korah and his rebellion kill 250 princes of Israel, sons of Levi, killed Dathan and Abiram, sons of Reuben, and himself, that the act that he did, the harm that he caused, I don't think he intended for it to be greater harm to the congregation because he was trying to lead the congregation. But little did he know his actions led to another 14,700 sons of Israel dying on account of his actions. Once again, a, a lesson to be learned as far as doing the appropriate, proper thing. We've been going through the book of Leviticus, the first part of Numbers, all going const, talking constantly about the appropriateness of worshiping the Lord, coming into his, his tabernacle, his tent, worshiping as he has been commanded to worship, and the children of Israel still yet to learn this. And we have their mistake to teach us. It's, it, again, th- this is a... What can we really learn here? How can we prevent this from happening again? I, I actually got to mention, too, I mentioned bad luck Brian, who turned 20 years old the day before they got the bad report. You know, I can only imagine the man who was right there on the edge when Aaron had brought the sensor and his life was spared just because Aaron ran that fast to that moment and to that place to keep the children of Israel. Uh, there was you can put yourself in the shoes of these people on what you really would have seen. If you were one of the living and had seen this, how would you have felt? What would you then have known? Would you have learned your lesson then? Did we now know not to mumble and grumble? Well, as we continue on through our Torah cycle, which we're not done with, and we're not done with the book of Numbers yet, there still was children of Israel yet to learn this mistake. But for us reading it, if you put yourself in those shoes, you, can, you will say, say to yourself in your own heart, I would have believed at that moment. Would you? Let's trust the Lord. Let's try to continue to keep these things in mind every time that we study these things and learn them. What happens in the rest of our portion is this, is now God has now chosen Aaron and his sons to be consecrated even more than before. Before it was all the sons of Levi that were consecrated as priests to and intercessors between Israel and God. And now what we have is we have a ceremony that takes place where Aaron's rod is placed before the other rods of Israel, um, 11 other rods. And then they, his rod buds, that God does another miracle that shows his approval of Aaron as the leader. And then it goes in chapter 18, talks about the continual duties of now the sons of Aaron. In fact, the Lord speaks to Aaron, not to Moses, but to Aaron and says, him and his sons, they shall bear all the iniquity and all the service of the tabernacle because of this sin. 250 other Levites proved they were not worthy to do this service. And so now the commandment comes upon Aaron even more that him and his sons shall be the servants of the tabernacle and be the the priests to the altar service. It also talks about how the tithes and the support of that service will now go directly to Aaron and not to all the rest of the Levites. Now, going back to looking at our entire portion as a whole, what again caused this to take place? What truly can we learn? I've already said about approaching the Lord in an unworthy manner. I've been 
explaining that for a, a great number of times. But let's go all the way back. Let's go back and look and say, what was Korah doing? What was he truly thinking? What was, what was his motivation here? Now, Korah, do you think Korah maybe learned his lesson when he went uh, down into the pit? Now, I should say this. The scripture doesn't specifically say where Korah was when the judgment came. Was he worshiping the Lord with the bronze censer uh, before the Lord in the tabernacle? Or was he with his tent and was swallowed from the ground or through the mouth of the ground? It doesn't say specifically. I read the entire chapter. It didn't say exactly where Korah was. Now, I do believe that it was Korah, though, that was with Dathan and Avaram and went down into the pit alive. And there's a couple of reasons and, and that I don't have time to explain why we think that that is. But do you think Korah in the pit now alive under the ground? Does he did he now realize his mistake? Did he now realize that what he should have done instead? There's one thing I want to take you to. Um, that I won't have time to read the entire passage, but Psalm 88, the, one of the things that's a little lesser known is that the sons of Korah actually survived. Korah, his entire family didn't die, but just him. And his descendants became very important in the history of Israel. One of his descendants happens to be the prophet Samuel. Another, many of his descendants actually wrote several psalms that we have in the book of Psalms. They became chief musicians of the tabernacle and of the temple and one psalm that i want to lead you to specifically is psalm 88 where which was written by one of the sons of korah and what i would i'm going to read some of the verses here and then let me see if you can get some of the essence of i almost call this this is the the bible according to ephraim the lament of korah that maybe this man may have realized his mistake and his downfall psalm 88 O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength. Adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. And you are cut off from your hand. And who are cut off from your hand? I have laid me in the you have laid me in the lowest pit in darkness in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves and have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up. I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I've stretched out my hand to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness but to you i have cried O lord and in the morning my prayer comes before you lord why do you cast off my soul why do you hide your face from me i have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth i suffer your terrors i am distraught your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day like the water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. As I read there, you can describe and you can picture a man alive under the ground in darkness. And so I like to think that Korah... And all the mistakes that he made and the rebellion that he made, that he may have had a little too much to drink, that this man could have been a wonderful, great leader. This man could have been a great leader amongst the congregation, and he probably was. 
the Lord brought him to a place and that he desired to worship the Lord. I, I actually don't question that in any way, shape or form. But why did he do what he did? What was his mistake? Where was he placed that was that caused this rebellion to happen the way that it did? There's some speculations about Korah. Like I said, that he was wealthy, that he spoke well. It's also believed that he was one as the sons of Kohath who carried the Ark of the Covenant. That he was one of the men who had one of the greatest honors to carry the Ark upon his shoulders to lead the entire congregation out. That he was walking even before the tribe of Judah as he led the as he carried the Ark of the Covenant. That's rabbinical sources that make that commentary. It's also said that sometimes that when he the commandment that took place right before the rebellion had to do with the tassel of blue thread, the blue thread that was told to tie into the corners of their garments. And that some of the rabbis speculate that Korah took that blue thread and he said, why do I just need to tie one blue thread that he made a tunic all of blue? And that when he came with the sons of Levi, they all were wearing blue tunics, that they were somehow more holy because they had more blue thread in their tunics. I have to wholeheartedly disagree with that belief or that story or that legend from Judaism. Because as I've been saying in the previous Torah portions, that there's been some other seeds of rebellion that have been planted in some previous Torah portions. If you go back earlier in Numbers that donations were given to the Levites, to the sons of Merari, the sons of Gershon, they were given carts to carry the materials of the tabernacle. The sons of Kohath were given no such carts. Everything they had to carry had to be upon their shoulders. If this was some time, even later, after receiving those commandments, Korah had been carrying the ark for a very long time. He was tired. He had his, his legs, his shoulders hurt. Why does he have to carry it with his legs while all the other sons of Levi get carts to carry their materials? If you go all the way back to uh, early, even earlier in Numbers, Numbers chapter 4, it also says that um, when the ark would travel when they would get ready to go and journey that the sons of Aaron would go into the sanctuary they would take all the holy articles of the tabernacle they would cover them all with a series of coverings with the outside covering being blue that there was a blue uh, tarp if you will that would cover the ark of the covenant when it would move and when it would travel and the sons of Kohath weren't allowed to go in and see it until it was covered with blue so then Korah, who wants to worship the Lord, who wants to be as close to the Lord as Aaron is allowed to get. Remember, Aaron, the high priest, he could go in on, the, uh, on Yom Kippur and he could see the actual Ark of the Covenant. Korah wanted that job. Even though he had been bestowed upon him a great honor to, to, to be very near to the Lord, to have such an honor to carry the Ark, that he wanted more. He was greedy. And he was already close to the situation. He was part of the family. He had all these opportunities to be a part of the leadership of Israel. But he wanted more. He wanted to see that gold. But all he ever saw was blue. So when the rabbis say that he made a tunic all of blue, that's why I disagree. Because I think Korah was sick of the color blue. He was tired of looking at the glorious thing that represented God and his presence in the camp. Which, was new, which he knew was made of gold, he was tired of seeing it all covered in blue. So then Moses commands them to put a blue thread in the corner of his garment. For someone who hates the color blue, he doesn't want to put a blue thread in his garment. He doesn't want to see that color ever again. And that is one of the things that sparked this rebellion, is that blue thread asked to be put into Korah's garment. Like I said, this man had great opportunities. To be in, uh, joined to the leadership of Israel. 
And one of the things everybody's heard this phrase, many have heard this phrase before, familiarity breeds contempt. Is that when you're so close to the situation, when you do something so often or on a regular basis, that then you become frustrated with it. You become contemptuous and you don't want to do it anymore. And that this was something that another thing that sparked Korah and his rebellion. He was too close to the situation. He was too close to the Ark of the Covenant already that he still wanted more. So what's the application we could take in our own lives, in our fellowships, in our families? The source of the rebellion sometimes comes from those closest to us. The ones who've already been bestowed honor. That the, that the threat to a fellowship or to a congregation is not going to come from the outside. The greatest threat is from within even the leadership, amongst the eldership. Maybe even the second or third in command is the one that leads the rebellion. One of the things we should always learn and turn our focus to is those who are close to us. And make sure that they are encouraged and strengthened. Just because they're family, just because they already have a great honor upon them. We should always turn and make sure they are encouraged and still happy with where the Lord has placed them with what they do. The greatest threat is not on the outside. The greatest threat is those that you are closest to you and that you are familiar with. That is where the rebellion and that is where Korah and where he was coming from. And so those are the things we should watch out for. The person maybe with the most money might rise up and complain. The strongest, the best looking the best orator, somebody standing up thinking they should be the leader, that's where the threat comes from. We should recognize those things before it gets to the level that Korah took it, to where great harm comes to the congregation. Amen? Familiarity breeds contempt, but sometimes when you familiarize yourself with the words of the Lord, just as I've studied this portion on a great number of occasions, when you're studying and you're familiarizing yourself with the word of the Lord, it doesn't breed contempt. It breeds a love for the words. So always remain focused on the word of the Lord. And that is what your primary focus should be. Be focused on where he has placed you in your life, the responsibilities he's given, and the blessings and honor that he's already bestowed upon you. Let's focus on that. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for the teachings of old. We thank you, Lord, for the story of Korah and everything that we can learn from it. Father, I pray that we would not um, turn away from the words and be afraid to teach these things, Lord, but that we would take them to heart in the greatest applications that we can draw into our own lives, Lord. I pray that you would make those known to us. Father, we pray that there never be a sin like this arise in the congregation ever again, whether it be a small congregation or the whole house of Israel, Father. We pray that no damage ever takes place again that happened as it did with Korah. May we learn these things. May we recognize these problems and these concerns and these rebellions before they happen, before harm can come. And let us all be humble to the honor and the privilege and the authority that they, you've bestowed upon us in, the, in wherever you place us, Lord. And let us continue to serve you with a servant's heart in everything that we do and everything you've commanded us to do. We thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai elam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.
Thank you, Ephraim, for that Torah teaching. It's my honor and privilege to bring you the Haftor teaching for this Shabbat. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, turn to First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 11 and hold your finger there at verse uh, 12, I believe. Yes, at verse 12. Hold your finger there. First Samuel 11, verse 12. Uh, our Torah portion was about Korah. And this portion is going to be about Samuel, uh, the last judge of Israel when King Saul was anointed to be king over all of Israel. And they went from the, the period of the judges of Israel to a monarchy, and King Saul, of course, was the first monarch of Israel. This wasn't something that Samuel wanted to do, and we'll discuss that just a little bit. But the people all rose up and called for them to have a king, to have a monarchy like other nations. And the reason why this portion is selected to go with Korah is, you recall, that Korah inspired rebellion within the people to come against Moses and against Aaron. Uh, Ephraim mentioned to you that Samuel is actually a descendant of Korah, so that it fits in nicely that one of the descendants of Korah should be part of our Haftor portion for this. And it's very clear that Samuel learned the lesson from his father, Korah, about not inspiring rebellion, not get the people out of control uh, for that. And so Samuel was opposed to them uh, having a king because he knew what having an earthly king would do to the land. He knew what it would do to the people. This would not work out well for them. It has its own costs and expense, and it's much better to let the Lord be king because he's a righteous king as opposed to an earthly king. So that's the reason why this portion is tied together uh, into Korah, the Great Rebellion. Uh, let me take you <clears throat> to, um, to our passage in 1 Samuel. Let me read to you for just a bit. This is at the moment where the discussion has ended. And Samuel is going to go and anoint Saul uh, to be king over all of Israel. And he has chosen the place to do this, to go to Gilgal. Now, if you remember your biblical history, Gilgal was the first place the children of Israel after the Exodus camped in the land. That's where the nation and Joshua actually began from Gilgal, uh, which is just to the west of the Jordan River, where they crossed the Jordan River into the land. And it was a staging area for all of Joshua and the forces of Israel to go and capture uh, the promised land from the various places that they had to battle. And so he's taking the whole nation of Israel back to Gilgal to renew the kingdom, to reestablish uh, the nation of Israel uh, and to go forward. So let me read for you from there. And at first, this is going to sound like an excellent thing that is taking place. But as we'll show you a little bit later on the passage, you'll get to understand what Samuel was saying. At verse 12 in chapter 11, it says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. 
So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they also sacrificed uh, sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now again, it sounds like a very joyous thing that's taking place. Let me give you just a bit more background. Why did the children of Israel rise up and say, we need a king? Why did they want that? Because they had been in this period of time of having judges. And what uh, each of the tribes, when they had come into the land after they were distributed throughout the land, um, basically ceased to cooperate with one another. They, they just became their own little fiefdoms, if you will. And even though they had a common law, the Torah, amongst them that would make them a nation, and the same rule and administration of it, they continued to break up into smaller and smaller groups, and as a result, lost the cohesiveness of the nation. Well, what did that cause? Well, that caused various enemies that were at their borders to rise up and to harass Israel in various places. They had the Philistines that harassed them, the Moabites harassed them up in Hazor. Uh, the king that was up there, he harassed them, took some of them captive for a little while. And now you've got the Moabites, um, you know, over there harassing them. And each time, <clears throat> God would raise up a judge that would lead the nation to defeat their enemies. Each time, God would provide the answer that they needed to deal with it. And But what was missing in the original plan was that instead of growing together, the tribes tended to grow apart even more so. Some got into sin. Dan, for example, brought in idolatry and other things. They began to mix and intermingle and continued to lose their identity as a single nation. And uh, it just happened to be that the Moabites rose up in great power along with the Philistines, and they were in kind of a pinched mode, and the people called for a king as the way to marshal all of the Israeli forces to be able to defeat their enemies. They thought that they, what they needed was they needed a military king uh, that would defeat the enemies, and they thought that was a much better plan for defending Israel. And so the people rose up and said, we want a king, and, and uh, so forth. And despite Samuel trying to urge them to trust and believe the Lord and obey the Lord, that's how the Lord will take care of those things. The Lord will go out and fight your enemies for you. Uh, instead, they, they, tried to ban, they tried to form a, a unity in the nation through a monarchy. And by the way, at that time, most nations, most city-state nations and so forth, they all had kings. Every nation you ran into, there was some king. But let me tell you what was the problem. Those kings, they would rule mercilessly against their own people. The sovereign right of the nation was in the seat of the king. And so he was like the sovereign rule. He, he had uh, the final word. A king could go in and he had the right. If I don't like you, well, he can have you killed. Uh, if, if the king comes along and he sees you've got a nice cow, he says, gee, I'd like to have that cow. He'd just take the cow. You wouldn't compensate. You wouldn't take care of you. In other words, he wasn't there to nurture the people. He was just there using uh, the people for it. And that's what earthly kings did. That's how they ruled. And they were ruthless. And, they, they were, and, they, and to the extent that they didn't want to let uh, anybody have any say about it. Now, I want to read to you 
this is uh, uh, Rabbi Hertz' commentary on the Pentateuch and Haftorahs. This is a, a humash. This is a Torah study book. It's one of my favorites. Um, a lot of people like the um, Stone Edition uh, humashes. Those are very popular. The reason why a lot of people don't know about it because this is the older one. This this guy was chief rabbi of the of uh, the Jewish people around the year 1900, and so this book is m over 100 years old, and it still stands out as an excellent commentary and an excellent humash. And I think part of the reason why is because he had a much more conservative point of view, uh, as opposed to sometimes the stone humash and so forth dabbles over into Hebrew mysticism and is a little bit more liberal in, in its thinking. Um, and, and by the way, you know, you hear about conservative and liberals even in our country. Well, there was conservative and liberal thought, you know, throughout the ages, even within Jewish circles and so forth. So Rabbi Hertz was one of the more conservative, and I like his style. I like the way he uh, presents his commentary. It's clean, precise uh, with regard to the passages. I want to read to you his opening commentary about this Haftorah portion, about this whole business of Israel asking for a king. Why was God's system of ruling through judges, why was God's system superior to an earthly king? I want you to listen to these words because while this is written by a rabbi of some ancient time, this is a perfect description of the Messiah and what the Messiah came to present himself to be. I want you to listen very closely to the description. The Messiah is the perfect picture of a king for Israel. And you'll find out that Yeshua of Nazareth presented himself as the ideal king for all of Israel. Let me read to you now from this commentary that goes with this Haftorah portion and the controversy of the people of Israel calling for a monarch, calling for a king to rule over them. Um, in this sedra, Korah and his associates complained unjustly of the rule of Moses. In the Haftorah, the people displayed ingratitude toward their devoted leader Samuel and clamored for a king to take his place. Both Moses and Samuel protest their utter disinterestedness in the service of the people. Samuel was the last and greatest of the judges. The task he was called upon to accomplish was one of extraordinary difficulty. Moses created the nation. It had disintegrated in the wild anarchy times of the judges. Samuel had to recreate it and rebuild it out of ruins. He found a loosely knit body of tribes and left them a united people. Although himself opposed to the monarchy, he made a national monarchy possible. But at the foundation of it, he laid firmly the biblical conception of the responsibility of the ruler to God. This is one of the main differences between Israel and other eastern nations of antiquity. Whereas in Babylon, for example, uh, a limited monarchy would have been deemed a contradiction in terms. In Israel, it is the people that is in possession of sovereign rights, and the king is under the law. The Jewish king was bound to respect the liberty, honor, and the property of his subjects, and its powers were strictly limited by the fundamental laws of the Torah. Specifically, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, is specifically the rules of the king. 
Prophets, psalmists, and all sages are all conceived as the king, as a shepherd of his people, whose scepter should be a scepter of peace, pity, and righteousness. So it is very clear that in the Torah, the way Moses had said that there shall be a king over Israel is the model set for Messiah. Yeshua of Nazareth, when he came to us, he came as a shepherd uh, to us in ruling. And in fact, the Messiah, one of the titles of the Messiah is the great shepherd. And, and uh, while he's king of kings, he's also the great shepherd. And his emphasis on the way he rules on a daily basis, that way you know, with his scepter, if you will, is that he's known for righteousness and pity and help to the people. He doesn't take things that belong to the people to himself. He gives the people the sovereign right of the entire nation. It's, and it's like in our own constitution. It, it was written on the same basic premises of this. Our country did not want to have a king. We didn't want to have a king. So they returned the sovereign right of the nation to the people of the United States, that the government serves the people. And that is part of the premise, the biblical premise of a king of Israel that was used by the founding fathers to set up the government of the United States of America. And we have benefited dramatically from having a government that is like that. Israel would have also benefited directly from that. And hopefully in the messianic age, we'll see the reality of what that's like. You know, when our Messiah returns as king and as the great shepherd and cares for all of us. That's a dramatic um, difference from uh, what we have as an earthly king. Samuel knew that Saul and any of the kings that would follow after would tax the people. He knew that he, they would take from the people to support the monarchy that they were not self-sustaining. He would not provide for his own income in his own place, but the people would have to pay for all of it. And so there was very strict rules about for the king that was given in the law to prohibit him from doing that kind of thing. Did, did Saul follow those rules? No. Did David and Solomon even follow those rules? It's very clear they did not, even though they're good guys you know, if you will, in the biblical. When you put a man in an earthly king position, it's not going to work out. You need the Messiah King to be in that position. He's the only one truly qualified to be in that position. That form of leadership extends all the way down into the eldership of congregations. There should not be a single leader, whether you, even if you call him pastor, or lead elder, or whatever, that should lord over the congregation like an earthly king. Instead, he should be known to be as a shepherd and to shepherd the congregation. And generally in every flock, depending on the size, you need multiple shepherds working together. Thus, you have eldership that was established to be shepherds of the congregation. I remind uh, leaders of, of uh, messianic congregations, do not... Quote, Lord it over the brethren. Instead, show yourself to be a servant. He who will be your servant will be greatest among you, Yeshua taught. 
And it's based on these concepts of the idea of earthly leadership versus God's version and his way of leadership for the people. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read to you the remainder of this passage. Uh, And in it, you're going to hear Samuel remind the people again that the Lord has from the very beginning raised up men to be shepherds, to care for the people in the nation as necessary, and that the Lord wanted to be the shepherd over the whole nation. That was his definition of being king over all of the nations. And yet, uh, the people did not respond to that and did not understand that properly. So beginning in chapter 12, let me read to you now this oration of Samuel the prophet. Then Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you've said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. And now, here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you with my mouth, with my youth, even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind eyes that I will, in it, I will restore it to you. He's posing the question, which is exactly the same question, if you recall, that Moses posed when he was in the conflict with Korah and Dathan and Aviram. Moses goes to him and he says, look, I'm leading the nation. I've been anointed by the Lord. Tell me whose donkey I took from them. Tell me whose things I took from you and defrauded from you that I I said I'd pay for them and I didn't. Tell me who of your stuff did I take. And, of course, the answer was Moses had taken nothing from him. Yet he had been a noble and good anointed leader of the people. And so Samuel's making reference to himself, and he says, Like Moses, I was raised up from my youth by God to be a leader of the nation, to be a judge, uh, and have I taken anything from you? Did you have to pay and support for me so that I could do my job and my function? Because if you get a king, you're going to pay for him. But I'm a shepherd. You don't have to pay for me. Uh, if I'm anointed the Lord, the Lord takes care of me. But if you, uh, you point somebody, guess who you're going to be paying? And you're going to pay dearly. For this, that's that's the point he's making here. Verse four. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is a witness. So Samuel's basically nailing the thing down. You yourself have said it, that I never took anything from you. And by the way, God is my witness. There's nothing in my hand. I own nothing that belonged to any of you. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, 
captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord, and he said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve thee. Then the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in security. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you've chosen, whom you've asked for. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. And if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servant to servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil by asking ourselves for a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have, committed, you have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. And you must not turn aside, for then you will go after futile things, which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has pleased to make you a people for himself." Do you remember the, the crucial moment when Moses had to face down Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? And there specifically Moses called out on the very day of the confrontation. He says, listen, <clears throat> if the Lord has anointed me, then God will do a strange thing that you've never seen before happen. But if the Lord has not anointed me, then these men will die of old age. They'll die of normal things that other men die. But if they die from a strange thing, something unique, something you've never seen before, then you know that the Lord has anointed me. Well, as soon as he finished the words, the earth opened up, swallowed up Dathan, Abiram, Korah, and destroyed them. On this day, Samuel said, to testify to you, to know that this is the truth. I'm calling on God right now. While we're at Gilgal, while we're here anointing the king, renewing the nation, I'm asking him to send a storm, to send a rain and a thunderstorm upon this place, to prove to you that the Lord, I am the Lord's anointed, and the Lord has sent me to give you this message. Well, sure enough, guess what happened? The storm clouds rose up, thunder and lightning. And I would imagine there probably was everything that comes with a thunderstorm. Probably hail. Probably the whirlwind. It was blustery. It was fearsome. If you ever go out in a big thunderstorm when it's raining like mad and the wind's blowing and howling and everything else, it's, it's, it's a compelling thing to you. You're, the, the, you're only thinking one thing. Seek cover. 
Well, here's the people, the children of Israel out there at Gilgal. There's not a lot of cover out there. And uh, all of a sudden he brings the rain. The rain, when it comes in that area, when it comes in a big thunderstorm, it usually produces flash floods. It's very dangerous. By the way, there in Gilgal, uh, it is subject to flooding. And it's a very dangerous piece of ground if you're in a big flash thunderstorm and so forth. It's fearsome. And so that's what God did to back up what Samuel was saying. So there's a number of parallels between this passage going back into Korah and the way Moses handled it, the way Samuel handled this. But the end result is the people wanted a king, an earthly king. And as we read through the rest of the biblical history from here on, we discover just how good and just how bad Saul is as a king. What will lead to King David? What will lead to King Solomon? And, and then the separation of the nations, and each say, nation has a king, and uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they all have kings. They all folded into the king thing until, until we have uh, the Romans come and conquer uh, even Judah. And King Herod... Uh, who was one of the last kings of the kingdom of um, of Judah, was a rotten king. And the people got a rotten king because they wanted a king with Saul from the very beginning. Um, classic lessons about leadership, God's form of leadership as a kingship, of him being pictured as a great shepherd. Lessons for us as leaders. Don't lord it over like an earthly king. Be a good shepherd like the Messiah is to his people. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. And thank you, Lord, for this teaching of Korah, the great rebellion of Samuel, and King Saul being anointed. Help us, Lord, to learn the wisdom of the scriptures, learn the principles of leadership and obedience so that we might uh, live out the blessing that you intend for us and you purpose for us. We thank you for our Messiah King, the Great Shepherd, for us. We thank you for giving him to us in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. Yevarecha Adonai Vish Merecha you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom.
Cheers.